welcome to Conversations About Life. Well, thanks, Matt, for getting together with me this morning. I'm looking forward to talking with you. Um, you're just a very pleasant person to be around, and then you're interesting, too, as far as your background and your interest and the you're knowledgeable about things. So thanks a lot for, for the conversation. Thanks for the opportunity of having me on. So as far as things that I know about you, one thing is that you have a background as a historian, that your, your training is in history. And what got you into that? What piqued your interest as far as that to begin with? I've always had a love of history. Uh, my father before me was uh, also a history major at uh, University of Missouri at Columbia, Mizzou. Okay. So I kind of followed in his footsteps as a legacy. Uh, always read a lot as a child. And uh, history was always a big topic of conversation around the dinner table. So really I can thank my parents for enkindling in me a, a great and deep love of history. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it's only grown over the years, and I majored in history at, and got my uh, bachelor's in history from Mizzou at, in 1990. Hmm. And uh, although I haven't applied it directly as a teacher, I've certainly uh, certainly come in handy in terms of my perspective on things, how I frame issues in the world, as well as uh, ability and a love of doing research to dig into issues, matters of truth. Now, what do people normally do with a history degree? Oh, there's lots of things you can do. Teaching, I mentioned, okay, right. uh, is is a common path. Um, museum curator, mm-hmm. uh, all sorts of things that are related to uh, taking care of, of our national um, historic sites, mm-hmm. preservation, that type of thing, uh, just comes to mind. Okay. But... It's also a good um, kind of preliminary degree if you're going to go into law because, okay. that, you know, history requires research. Unless you're going to write some type of tendentious history to suit an ideology, then which I don't consider history. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really a, uh, like an archaeologist. You're digging for the truth, and you want to know things as they actually happened mm-hmm. and not as you wish they had happened. Mm-hmm. So one thing, as I was thinking about this, that I was curious about, these next two questions kind of go together, but one was, do you have any tips for the lay historian? And then the second question is, like, how do you judge whether something, whether an account is credible or not, like a historical account? Um, So I think those two things kind of go together, because like as as a lay historian, you want to know like how much confidence to put into something that you know is told about in history and so forth. Uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I think the uh, sine qua non, the, the essential precondition for being a historian is, is a love of truth and a mm-hmm. pursuit of that. So how we do that? Well, uh, cross-referencing sources is very important. 
uh, digging to the most primary sources possible. Most people tend to skim across the surface of other people's research. Mm-hmm. Uh, they'll read books, and of course, reading is is also uh, a sine qua non. It's it's absolutely essential that you you be a reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so you you need to you need to delve beneath and as much as possible get to primary source documents. So, for instance, when I was at Mizzou, as a as a history major, I had access to the kind of the inner sanctum of the library, which you have to get special permissions, but you can actually see original monographs of Thomas Jefferson or Abraham Lincoln, the actual letters they wrote, things like that. That's that's really important for getting to the root of things if you're going to be a good historian. The, the, the closer you get to the primary sources, the better. Yeah. Um, also, like in other fields of science and academia, things that are peer-reviewed are very important. Uh, that kind of feedback from from one's colleagues mm-hmm. as to to what is uh, not credible sources, but you you have to do your own research. You have to be willing to do research and, like I said, do a lot of cross referencing of of materials. So, is first person accounts like is that a really important thing? Um, for example, like you know, biblical accounts. You got. Um, the gospel, the writer of Luke, who um, he seems to have more of compiled other people's accounts, and then you have like John, the author of John, and the, the gospel according to John, and it seems to be more first person. Like in history, is that a a pretty important thing to whether or not it's a first person account or not? I think. Uh, the first-person account really delves into the what I'd call the psychology of history, uh, which to me makes it come alive and is very interesting. So when you're looking at, let's say, I was I mentioned Abraham Lincoln. When you're looking at his letters and his diary and 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 his writings, what you're seeing is the mind of the man, and then set in his times. Mm-hmm. And so obviously that's important if you're writing a biography. Mm-hmm. But I think it's equally important to get a kind of sense of the flavor of the times. Too many histories are just kind of third-person narratives that just skim on the major political events or the wars that happened, but you never really get inside. Uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote a lot about that. He's a, he's a writer. I really admire an English writer, turn of the yeah. century. I'm and, familiar and with he him. Talk, talks a lot about that in his in many of his major works like The Everlasting Man and uh, getting getting into the psychology of the history. What did it feel like to live in those times? What were the, the general thought patterns? So yes, I think a first-person narrative is, is a very effective way to teach history. And does it mean more as far as like the credibility of the account? I think it, uh, it certainly does. Um, but again, you, you have to weigh a lot of different factors. Uh, what you, you still have to gather a lot of evidence about the person whose, say, narrative you're, you're looking at. And, and so there's, there's, it's, it gets kind of complex. It's kind of sophisticated. I think, I think uh, 
learning history, writing history is, is as much an art as science because you you're guided by some intuition mm-hmm. and you're guided by you know, the principle of really trying to get down to the root of who the person is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people can write things and they're not sincere about it. So that's as true in 1860 as it would be in 2022. So you have to be careful about evaluating mm-hmm. what it is you're reading. Okay. You know, you could be reading a piece of propaganda from 1870, and it's still propaganda. It's still just someone's personal viewpoint for an agenda with an agenda behind it, not necessarily their sincere thought. So, something we both have in common is just Christianity being a part of the Christian faith. And so, I have an interest in history in just kind of a general, broad way. But my most important historical question has to do with the resurrection. Which, um, as a Christian, you know, I am accepting as it's really happened, and I'm living my life based upon as if it really happened. Um, but it's something that, you know, I, I guess, you know, I wanted to kind of know more about, um, you know, like from a historical perspective how much credibility can be given to it um, so that it's, um, yeah, it's just kind of like one of those questions for me. Um, have you thought much about, you know, the resurrection from a historical perspective and um, how credible it is from just that perspective um, besides it just being a matter of faith? Um you know, just the historical credibility of it. Well, in answering that question, let me start by saying I, too, I'm a Catholic, and I'm a, a, a firm believer in the resurrection, in the Nicene Creed, uh, which is a summation of, of the principles of, of the Christian faith, uh, among other creeds. I'm completely convinced, uh, and as a historian, um, I think my knowledge and love of history and and the underlying truth of things is what led me to being a a Christian. And so, yes, the resurrection did happen. And how do we know? Well, from a historian's perspective, the evidence has never been refuted, whether related fields like archaeology, everything that has been, and, and you know as well as I do, there's plenty of forces out there that do their best to try to to refute the historiosity of the resurrection, the incarnation and the resurrection. Um, and they've never succeeded in a credible way because the, the fact is that it happened. And the fact is that there's plenty of historical evidence, archaeological evidence that supports that uh, down through the centuries and has stood the test of time against many, many forces that would wish to tear that uh, worldview down, that fact of history down. And I guess the main, um, you know, historical evidence would be the gospel accounts. And like, I guess some, St. Paul's, some of his epistles where he speaks about his um, uh, seeing Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. So I guess that's kind of like our historical documents, so to speak, for the resurrection for the most part, right? Certainly. Um, But there again, 
it could be argued that, well, because you're a believer, naturally you're going to take the testimony of the Gospels as gospel, mm-hmm. if you will. And so you really have to look at it from other other perspectives. Um, what were the uh, what was the agenda of the Jews of the of the day? The Sanhedrin did they did they want? First of all, they put our our Lord to death. Then, if they could have produced a body, don't you think they would have? It um, <clears throat> it seems um, like I in just kind of thinking about the Book of Acts, there was um, it seems like the the apostles as they were. The Sanhedrin, you know, they were like afraid that they were making um, that the guilt of this man's death would fall on them because all the people were, you know, following this new way, this new teaching, and so forth. So they were certainly concerned about that. Um, I don't know. um, Yeah. So anyway, the the tomb was sealed. Right. Guards were set around it. Mm And to disprove the resurrection, what better way than to produce the body of Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, the, on the fourth day, you open the tomb. There's his body. Uh, he's not God. Would be their line of argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but that didn't happen, did it? Somehow, the uh, the tomb was found empty. The guards were nowhere to be seen, and there was no way, even though they. They tried everything they could to disprove the resurrection, which they had every intention and motivation to do. So that's just that's just one uh, historical fact. They've never yeah. been able to disprove it. And uh, of course, one thing too that's interesting, and this is especially I'm especially sensitive to as a Catholic, is that God Himself weighs into history, and it's not just left to us to figure all this stuff out. Uh, just as the gospel accounts themselves are uh, historically inspired by, by the Holy Ghost, so too God has wrought miracles down the centuries that prove that he is real, his existence is real, that Christ is truly uh, God, and that he was incarnated, born, lived, and died as to, to redeem us from our sin. And that has been been proven by many many miracles. The most dramatic uh, in our late century, the 20th century, it was the apparitions at Fatima, where the Blessed Virgin Mary appeared to the three shepherd children, and it culminated in a series of six visits in October uh, 13th, 1917, with the miracle of the sun, which had been witnessed by you know tens of thousands of people newspaper journalists, scientists, all sorts of people and who could not refute the, the miracle. And the miracle was in support of the message, the message that basically that the resurrection is true and that, that God is real and that God uh, wants us to turn away from our sin and turn toward his will and his grace and, uh, and live according to his will. And that all that flows from the Christian worldview is actually true. Okay. Yeah, that's something I haven't looked into um, at all, really. I, I know you've mentioned it before. Um, but when I think of, like, miracle or just something like some kind of um, 
personal evidence, I think of my conversion experience of um, just this whole new, um, of like experiencing God's forgiveness, where it's not like someone just told me I was forgiven or I read I was forgiven. It's like I experienced and felt and spiritually knew I was forgiven, you know, and then and having a changed heart and a whole new world opening up to me, you know, the world of um, um, God and the things of God and so forth, you know. So there's personal experience there. But um, what, what about yourself? How did um, you get started in Christianity? You know, was that from just a, a real young person or... Well, I grew up as an Episcopalian. Okay. So I was um, I was baptized in the Episcopal Church as an infant, September sixth, nineteen sixty six. Okay. Uh, which, if you do the math, that kind of dates me. I'm fifty six. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I grew up as an Episcopalian. But we went to church on Sunday. I grew up in Jeff City, and had a nice. Uh, middle class, upper middle class family. And we went to church on Sunday and we did all the, the proper things socially. But I, I have to say that, especially as I got older, went to college, uh, you know, my, it's not that I, I, I renounced my Christianity or my, my uh, love of Christ. It's more that it just, I became indifferent to it. And it, it the, the spirit of the world as it does for so many young people today, just seeps in and, and changes your, your viewpoint. It just doesn't even seem practical to, uh, to love, love Christ or follow him. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems irrelevant to too many people. So that was kind of the broad sweep. Um, I do want to touch on something that's very important to me, uh, is my testimony, because... Uh, you know, sin is is an ever-present uh, reality in our existence, mm-hmm. and the world, the Christian worldview, fits perfectly with fallen human nature to explain it. Mm-hmm. Well, my nature is as fallen as anyone. So, when I was 31, and I had been working out east, uh, I had done several jobs, uh, some in uh, government. One, I had a, 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 a small business, a bakery deli. And I, but I came back to Missouri, to St. Louis, and um, I carried a lot of uh, anger with me from things in childhood, uh, pretty normal upbringing, but it seems like families are dysfunctional to one degree or another. Mm-hmm. The long and short of it is uh, I got into an argument with my cousin, and uh, I, I beat him very badly. And I ended up going to prison for that for 23 years, as a matter of fact. Wow, that's you can time. You can argue that that was kind of a disproportionate sentence. But, you know, at the time, and of course that's just human justice. And mm-hmm. in, in God's justice, uh, that certainly merits going to hell. Because I do believe in heaven, I do believe in hell. But what, what that event did um, was create not only a, a deep remorse for... Um, having let my anger uh, slip that bound, but also, and I accepted the consequences. I didn't. I didn't try to fight that in trial, or I just. I just took 
took the consequences. But the reason is because, I mean, the more the more important takeaway is that um, it kind of concentrated me spiritually um, to to really take a do a re- real reevaluation of where I stood with God and my spiritual life. Mm-hmm. And my upbringing was recalled and how I was living now and not living in, in God's will, living a very sinful, very secular, humanist life. And so um, I really turned back to God at that, that time during that, that period while I was waiting to go on trial in the county jail. Mm-hmm. And it may sound stereotypical to one's listeners, but actually many conversion experiences happen because mm-hmm. these kind of life-changing events, whether it's a illness or it's a, you know, a, an event like mine where I had committed a crime and I had to, uh, had to pay for that. Um, but see, it, God uses that for op- to give people opportunity to repent and to come back to the father like the prodigal son. Mm-hmm. So I did, and the way I did it was kind of interesting because um, I'd been an Episcopalian. I decided I wanted to recommit my life to Christ, but I didn't really know where exactly I would fall in terms of Methodist or Catholic or Episcopalian. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I needed guidance, so I prayed to the Holy Ghost for guidance, and somebody gave me a rosary one day. And I started praying the rosary, how to pray the rosary. And I felt a very strong, you talk about experience. Well, my experience was that I felt a very strong and loving presence of the mother of God. Hmm. And that she was comforting me and she was there to bring me back to her son. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I became a Catholic and everything really kind of cohered both intellectually as well as in the most deep experiential portion of me, I could feel the love of God. Mm-hmm. I could feel the love of his mother. And uh, it was just a beautiful, very uh, tearful moment, a real catharsis. And then I knew from that point on, I had my path set out. And even though it was a long path through a lot of penance, mm-hmm. which I, I accepted as God's will, uh, with with and, humility. And what do you mean by penance? Penance is doing twenty three years in prison. I see. Is penance, right? Okay, right. It's, it's not an easy path in mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. It's certainly uh, the conditions are just not right. Just good. humbly uh, facing the consequences. But right, just accepting, accepting all the things that go with that. Right. Uh, for those years uh, in faith, and and God used that opportunity for my faith to grow and grow, and to to reform my soul to confess my sins, to align myself with his will, which I've done, and I'm completely at peace with that. And so that's really why I'm very happy to talk to you today, because there is such a great sense of peace uh, when you quit trying to be the center of the universe and you quit trying to make decisions on your own apart from God's will. All those things turn into dead ends. And we can see it around us, you can see it within us, whether it's, you know, drug addiction or, or anger issues, which was my, my thing, or any number of idols that people think is going to make them happy. You know, if I'm only elected to this office, if I'm only make this much money, you know, all these things 
turn out to be uh, just kind of illusions and dead ends in the end if you're if you're not aligned with God's will. So, well, what about your cousin? Has there been any reconciliation? Is he doing okay? Or he unfortunately uh, is going to always be per- permanently damaged uh, his eyesight, mm-hmm. especially. Mm-hmm. Um, he lives in New York. He uh, there isn't going to be a reconciliation. Uh, both both. It was not permitted by the legal system, but also within the family, it, it split the family apart. Hmm. Yeah. So my mother doesn't speak to her brother, whose father my cousin was. And yeah, he, he suffered some permanent brain damage. Hmm. So yeah. it, was, it was a serious event, and uh, you know, I, can't, I can't minimize that mm-hmm. at all. But uh, I, I think he's doing relatively okay i think he lives on disability i send him money every month oh do you yeah i do wow and I, it's not that i have to mm-hmm. I'm, there's no court order that says i have to but a sense of obligation right um there are any um but it's not the type of thing where there's communication i guess right no i don't think there ever will be i don't think that'll be possible okay and um and is it like partly due to his just mental state and so forth? Or? I don't think it's due to him so much as his the family on his side. I of, see. Of, of my family. Right. It, like I said, it split the family, and and uh, mm-hmm. his his relatives don't talk to my side of the family. It's just one of those permanent right permanent divisions. Hmm. Uh, I've been yeah. close to my other cousins, you know, uh, but not anymore because of that. So everyone took sides in the family. Okay. Very little um, sense of redemption or reconciliation because Christianity doesn't really touch our family very deeply. I think I'm the only really committed Christian. Hmm. And then, of course, it's easy for people to mock that as well. You know, of course, you went to prison, you found, found you had your come to Jesus moment, and, mm-hmm. you know, they roll their eyes and go about it. But I've never really let that bother me. One thing that is uh, important as in my walk with Christ is you, you don't worry about human respect. You, you worry about what God thinks of what you're doing and staying in His will. And uh, history, again, is my comforter because you see the saints and martyrs go through history being misunderstood, maligned, martyred, uh, even within the church, like I think of St. Joan of Arc, burned burned at the stake by the church, you know. Right. They, they apologize later. But, yeah. but, you know, so you face, you, gotta, you just have to accept that you're going to face persecution right. if you choose that worldview, uh, right. even within your own family. So it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. It's just I, I pray for those people, like, our Lord says to pray for one's enemies, so right. I don't harbor anger. Right. And um, so you, I guess it's kind of like you and maybe just those really close to you, like your mom and so forth, um, like you're kind of isolated from your family for the most part, it sounds like. Is that right? Except for maybe just... Small the cousins. Family. I'm isolated from my aunts and uncles and cousins. Okay. But my mother... Uh, 
God bless her to her credit. She always stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father did until he died in August 2016. Uh, they were always very supportive and mm-hmm. uh, and very encouraging. My sister, my brother fell away, but my sister stayed with me too. Okay. So that's so, the core family. And of course now with my wife, I have a new family. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So you're... Um, so you have a brother, but you're not close to him, or no? And was this the event that kind of separated you two, or uh, partially? It's more complicated than right. that, since he was—he's really my half brother. He was raised in my father's second marriage, and we were there's a 13 year gap between us, and we were kind of raised separately. And there's—he brings a lot of kind of his own. Uh, bitterness and issues to that but of course the event that put me in prison for so many years didn't help either right so you know you mentioned that you deserve hell uh, for what you did and a lot of people would push back on that I kind of understand you know I have an understanding about that um, it so in some ways it makes sense to me but some people would say well 23 years is a long time. Like the the thing about hell is um, the way it's um, described and understood by a lot of people is like never ending, eternal, forever, forever, forever. Like what could deserve that? So um, what? Uh, why? Why did you say um, that this this deserves hell? Because it's it's a mortal sin. It's a sin that breaks broke my relationship with God and uh, that is what why souls go to hell because of their own choosing to to break that relationship and I grant you hell is a very difficult issue because nobody wants to think that there's that type of consequences to one's actions in this world especially Mm -hmm. when we view our actions through a human prism uh, think of Adam and Eve. All we did was, you know, eat of the fruit of this forbidden tree. I mean, it's not that big a deal, right? Well, yeah, it really was, uh, because they're looking at it from a human perspective. But in God's perspective, it not only caused the, their fall, the fall of uh, of a curse that carried through to their children, but also all of creation fell. <laughs> there was no Garden of Eden then, because now... Uh, natural disasters can occur, be it earthquakes or lightning strikes or wild beasts. That was never true prior to the fall. All of creation was in harmony. So as the apex of creation, uh, Adam, uh, his decision to... And by the way, if, if, Adam had, uh, if Adam had told Eve, I'm sorry, you, you sinned, we have to go before the Lord and take care of this, it could have been rectified but his consent to her sin is what caused creation to fall. Mm-hmm. But so it, that that just illustrates that in, from God's perspective, what we think is not so important is very important to God. Mm-hmm. And uh, hell may seem cruel to people until they realize that it's people's choice to go there. It's not. It's not that. Uh, it, it's that you do not want a relationship with God. Mm-hmm. And God's done everything in Christ to to bring, you know, mankind back into the fold. Well, God expects us to follow what 
Christ teaches. So, what about those who don't know of Christ? God is mercy. He's love itself. You know, God is love. Mm-hmm. And so he makes a way, and we may never know, but he's working on the soul of each each man, woman, and child in this world. And we we have to believe that because God is completely just, there is nothing, no imperfection in him, that he gives each man, woman, and child the opportunity of, of grace to be saved. Um, we may not know, know how, we may not know the process, um, but there is a doctrine in Catholic theology called invincible ignorance, whereby, you know, you, through no human way could you have been convinced of the truth, but God can read the heart of any person, because obviously he's God. So he knows that were the conditions right, you would have, you would have accepted Christ as your Savior, and so forth, and those conditions weren't right. Like imagine growing up in the Middle East, in, in a Muslim-dominated country. How do you even have a chance under that kind of oppressive system? where you're persecuted, especially if you were a Muslim and converted, you, now you're, you're on the run for your life on many occasions. So that type of thing, uh, that's one of those things I don't really worry about because I'm just glad I'm not running the universe. <laughs> I'll let yeah. God run the universe. And I can kind of see um, the point of mortal, whereas is the other venial, venial sins, sin, right. from um, the end of... Uh, First John, where um, he says something along the lines, you know, pray for those who sin. And I'm not saying um, some sin leads to death. I'm not saying pray about that, but, you know, pray for the other sins and God will forgive them and so forth. Mm-hmm. So how, what is the definition of mortal sin, you know, from a Catholic perspective? Uh, a mortal sin is a serious enough sin that it, it breaks one's relationship with God. A venial sin is one that does not break that relationship, but of course is more not. like a mistake. It could be a mistake, or it could be something whose seriousness is is of a very low order. Okay, like uh, you know, you you get impatient with your wife or something, mm-hmm. and uh, versus killing somebody. You know, there's there's a there's a different magnitude and and uh, order of of sin. Mm-hmm. Some some are worse than others. I mean, everything is sin, but some are are have greater consequences. So, in that uh, letter, John is saying, uh, "I'm not saying pray for the person who has sinned, you know, unto death, leading to death." But I, I suppose that that repentance is still available for that person if they were to turn even from um, mortal sin, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. As long as we're alive and breathing, that that sin can be forgiven by by Christ. And you know, it's interesting, but uh, exegesis is a is a very fascinating uh, part of of understanding. You know, the Bible, biblical interpretation. Yeah. And obviously, theologians spend whole careers on that. Down through the generations, so I don't I don't claim to be an exegist, but I do get my teaching from what the church has passed on and in my catechisms and so forth. And I can say something like I've always I've always asked, well, when you when you read something like 
in Exodus where God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Does that mean that God himself is preventing this man from repent, from, from repenting? And, and if so, the implication is, well, maybe God is doing something unjust. But that's where interpretation really, really comes into play. So a Catholic in, interpretation of that type of passage is that uh, what God has actually done is withdrawn any supernatural grace from Pharaoh so that he can he has to deal with his own inclinations to sin without God's aid. See, God wants to help us, and when we try to live in his will, he gives us grace to, to live a holy life. He doesn't just abandon us and, you know, good luck. You know, if you make it, great. If not, well, it's too bad. You know, he's there to help us, but we have to we have to cooperate with that grace. And so in, in the sense of Pharaoh or in someone who you see commits repeatedly serious sins, you even see, you see that, you can see that very uh, phenomenon in, in a secular sense with someone who's lost to drug addiction or a complete psychopath, you know, and you, you see it in their eyes, you see it in their behavior. They're so hardened to sin that they... God has withdrawn His grace. It's they're they're having to try to to deal with with their own issues, even unbeknownst to them, without any aid whatsoever. And and so that's generally souls are lost because uh, you know they've put themselves in that type of position. They're kind of like given over, kind of like um, Romans first. First chapter speaks about you know God gave them over to their own ways. So that's speak. it. That's it exactly. So that means that He's just withdrawn His supernatural grace, and uh, that's a dangerous position for a soul to be in. So, um, yeah, that's 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 pretty much the idea there. Well, now not only are you Catholic, but you're Catholic in kind of an older tradition, like the Latin Mass tradition. So why? Um, why the Latin Mass? I know I asked you, but I don't remember exactly. Well, <laughs> this ties in with uh, with my love of history. Okay. Because I also love tradition, and I'm not one of these people that's constantly uh, trying to change or destroy tradition. I because, in a sense, that's a uh, disrespect to everyone who's made a contribution to civilization that's gone before like to just to recreate the wheel like for instance in you know in the 1960s trying to talk about free love well they didn't create that in the 60s you know they as if that was something new it's just there's nothing new under the sun says ecclesiastes but there's a hubris that goes with that there's a hubris that goes with saying you know everything that's been done before is 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 was wrong or 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 you know benighted and so only now we have the the right way of doing something well um if um if it's about like um not change and innovation why not go before latin you know the new testament documents were written in koine greek why not go back that far it's i guess i have to switch analogies Things do grow and, and change in certain in certain ways. I, I can reach into Aristotle. So the accidents of things change, uh, the appearances change, but the substance doesn't change, and the principles don't change. Principles being substance. So that if you were, 
you you and you have to one has to make distinctions between that. So the early church, for example, is a good example. They didn't have beautiful cathedrals. They didn't have all these things. Does that imply that it was a, a more pure, a more uh, authentic form of Christianity than, say, the High Middle Ages when they're building those magnificent Gothic cathedrals? I say no. It does not imply that at all. Some people that that kind of antiquarianism is is look back like, well, this was a simpler, more pure time. I think that's an illusion. The better analogy is that. Would you go back from being an adult to a fetus? And I wouldn't. Right. You know, would you go back from an imperfect but growing form, growing toward your manhood? Would you rather go back to that as some kind of ideal existence? That's how I kind of look at the church. So it's not that what happened in the first century or there was anything wrong, but it was just built upon, added upon, and then the genius of each generation and their desire to praise God and, and give him ever greater worship, they came up with those magnificent monuments of the faith. But in recent days, you do you do think the substance or principle has changed and you're kind of sticking to the before the change? Well, so let me let me give you the thread of the substance. Okay. The thread of the substance is from the Last Supper of Christ himself to this present day, the Mass has not changed, the okay. substance of the Mass. Okay. And, and for a Catholic, that, of course, is transubstantiation. That was a, a term applied, you know, in the Middle Ages. However, the same process was, was occurring. What is that process? That is that at the words of consecration, starting with our Lord and through every priest, through his holy orders, uh, has the power of that substance being changed from the, the bread and the wine into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So that's a big difference between considering it just a symbol. We consider it really the bread from heaven, the food of life that increases the life of grace within us. Now that's no different at, at that upper room where our Lord presided over the first Mass at the Last Supper to today. What's happened in since the Second Vatican Council, which was a, uh, one of the ecumenical councils, as they call it, that was held by the churches, like the 21st, They're, they don't come very often, every century or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happened it was more of an kind of a loss of faith, really, that 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 really is not the truth anymore and that it's really more symbolic. And so that is to ch- that is an attempt to change the substance of, and by the way, that council was 1962 to 1965. Uh, there's, a, there's been a great loss of faith within the church, those who even occupying the throne of Peter, uh, just because you occupy a certain office does not guarantee that uh, or equate to a, a certain level of holiness that one would expect for taking on that great, great responsibility. And unfortunately, when the real presence of Christ, that the substance of the Mass is denied in many ways, like for instance, um, in, the, in the 16th century, some of the Dutch reformers used to hold out their hand and receive the the holy wafer, holy communion in the hand. Well, that was 
purposeful denial of the real presence. Um, that, again, we always, as a traditional Catholic, we always receive Holy Communion on the tongue, and it, it serves to emphasize that this is truly on our knees, that this is truly the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity. This is our God we're receiving, truly present in us, in, in, a, in the most humble form, humble substance that uh, possible as a way to, to really capture our soul, communicate with us, build the life of grace within us. So to stand and to hold out your hand, receive it in the hand, is first of all disrespectful. To, this is what God we're talking about. And second of all, you wouldn't you would not kneel before God. You, that that's your instinct. You wouldn't just stand, you know. Uh, but also, every particle of the substance of a consecrated host is is truly God. So if you get crumbs or particles in your hand and then you brush them on the floor and then people trample on them, you can see that that's a sacrilegious act. That's why. That never happens in the Catholic, in the traditional Mass. Those things, that's why you have a server who holds a, a patent under your chin when you're receiving. If, God forbid, the host were to fall out of the priest's hand, who, whose hands are consecrated, onto the ground, then everything stops. And the pre, there's a certain ritual for making sure every particle is is ta- t- picked up reverently and, and you know, so you think that the Catholic Church is off base nowadays in some ways, and I guess that's kind of consistent with like how Catholics might think of the Church. Like at certain times in history, perhaps during the times of Martin Luther, you know, there were legitimate problems, and the Church was off base here and there. So, and that's kind of like um, a way Catholics can think about the Church. Like um, it's not a Reformation, but it's like the church is wrong here. I well, suppose the, the church always needs a reformation. Okay, that's why. But yeah, but not like the reformation where that ends up breaking off. See, know. that's that's where my my sense of history comes into play because that's not really a reformation that Martin Luther sparked. It was a revolution. Okay, and and while he had many uh, legitimate criticisms of of certain practices in the church, uh, uh, he also started attacking the substance, the dogmas of the church. And dogma is just a, a fancy word for saying an, uh, a, a, matter, a principle of faith that cannot be changed. So, Like a teaching. A teaching of the church. Like the best example is um, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, which was, was codified by the Nicene Council in 325, uh, three divine persons and one God. Well, if you try to change that, you're cha- trying to change a dogma, something that cannot be changed. Uh, you can't just say, well, you know, we've rethought that and, and we're going to just change the formula. Many heresies revolved around trying to change that understanding of the Trinity. So I use that as an example. So Martin Luther went too far, and he, instead of making a real contribution to the church, what he did was he actually tried to create his own religion. Um, fast forward to the church today, the, the, the real error is called modernism. And again, it's a sense of a loss of faith in the supernatural direction of the church by, by God himself, as epitomized by what I said at 
about Fatima, where Our Lady really is letting everyone know what what the path forward is out of the world, First World War and out of all the problems that would follow in, in the age of the turn of the century. Um, so modernism is that spirit that, of worldliness that has crept in. And, and I have to make a distinction, too, because the church as an institution uh, it, and the church as the human element so the church is instituted by Christ and is a divine institution. It's, it's God's own work versus the, the, the fallen men and women who inhabit the church, which is you and me, uh, any, anyone who in, in their office can abuse their office if they're a bishop or a priest or a pope uh, or a nun or religious. You, know, you can fall away from your vows. You can set a bad example. And then people conflate that and the the example of 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 sinners within the church with the church as a divine institution holy and without defect and that's a distinction that's taught in the catechism it's been always taught and that's one reason i i can make that distinction and say well even though the traditional catholic from a from a human point of view is kind of a, a remnant it uh, compared to the most Catholics today, who have one way or another compromised with modernism, it um, the church herself cannot be destroyed. It's been tried and tried and tried throughout history uh, by every means possible. That's what all the persecutions of the church, from Diocletian to Stalin, you can't you cannot kill the church. But that doesn't mean that the church won't will survive as she did say in previous times when in more health, healthy times uh, but you know the church will endure mankind has fallen well, you know I was going to ask you what life events have impacted you you already told us about you know what led to going to prison and um, and then I'm sure that, you know that's not like a one and done thing like you know that's surely something you carry with you that's still shaping you and like um, it seems to me like for some people um, some of the most difficult things in our lives are what God uses to grow our character you know <laughs> but um, what's what life events have impacted you and shaped your life um, is it mainly that or are there other things or if it's that, like how so? How have has your character been shaped? How has God worked in that? Well, uh, you're correct that that life changing event of committing my crime, which was a grave sin, and having to answer for that and 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 pay the consequences of that, both in an earthly and a spiritual sense, has been kind of the watershed moment. Mm -hmm. However, uh, of course, I draw on many experiences prior to that, like my love of history and my history degree and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I also, going forward, <clears throat> and maybe not, not on such a broad plane, but in terms of um, everyday um, decisions, 
uh, starting my day with prayer, um, always staying close to God, um, u- utilizing the people around me that God has placed in my life and always seeing good in those people and doing what I can do to impact their life for the better. Uh, you know as well as I do that, in, especially in our day and age, it's very hard to just go out and proselytize. People look at you askance and they're like, they, you're already kind of pigeonholed and, and, and not listened to. So the approach is really uh, through, let, you mentioned character, through letting God develop those traits in your character, especially humility patience, kindness, all those gifts of the Holy Spirit, and then um, letting him communicate through you to others. Uh, you know, I think our, our relationship's a good example of that. And then just letting those relationships develop uh, as God wills. And that, and not taking a cynical um, approach to life, not getting too lost into the geopolitics of the day, which are very ugly, uh, the things that are going on, but really trying to stay focused on um, on on the relationships that God places me in at any time, and that and living living a sense of integrity, whether it's in my work life, you know, doing a good good job for my employer, um, whether it's uh, dealing with uh, my wife. Now, see, there's there's a big positive impact because mm-hmm. she we met. Uh, while I was in prison, we started corresponding. Oh, really? Wow. What year did you get out of prison? I uh, got out in July of 2020. Okay. Yeah, about a year. Pretty half, recent. Half ago, yeah. And um, you guys were um, met while you were still in prison, in huh? 2018, yeah. Wow. And uh, through Did a mutual re- friend. Okay. And I started, we started corresponding, and then she started coming to visit. And then these things really have a have a, as much chance of working out as winning the lotto but in this case because my attitude was always you know not my will but your will be done he did he did bring this woman in my life and i know it was of god because he sustained that relationship and that love between us and we made it all the way to the altar and we've had a beautiful marriage for 8 months now and it's been nothing but harmony and peace. And by the way, I want to say this, that people who think that arguing or disputing in one's marriage is a natural part of marriage, I tell you, it's not. I mean, listen to your own vows, if you if you take Christian vows. Uh, you know, men are to, to love their wives, women are to obey their husbands, and it's a mutual support, and it's a mutual uh, sense of love and respect that should never, ever uh, change. So we've, we've had not one argument. That doesn't mean we don't disagree about things, but we know how to communicate. We, we keep those bonds of trust and love uh, very much alive in terms of I'm always showing her my love and what I say to her or what I do for her uh, you know, and how I, how I treat her and vice versa. So as far as arguing, there's... Um the um, the arguing in the sense of I just want my way and I'm just to to win, or there's the there's this difference there's this disagreement. Um, let's 
come together and engage on it. Um, I'm going to put forth like my viewpoint, you put forth yours, and hopefully we'll work to a place that is good for both of us. Um, so is that, um, does that seem to have, does that have a place in marriage, do you think? Like that arguing in that sense? Um, maybe it's a matter of semantics, because <laughs> I don't really call that arguing. Okay. But it does sound like you practice that in your marriage, too. Well, no, we don't <laughs> very much. Um, I'm uh, trying to compromise and find a find a common ground. Um, no, um, like uh, we're not. We don't have communication. In we're not. Uh, we just um, we're not able. So I. But I long for that. I wish oh, we did. Okay. I wish we could engage and talk through disagreements and stuff. But we're not. I say, well, maybe I'll have to interview you on that topic someday. (laughs) But on in my case, uh, we we have a very fundamental disagreement. She's a Seventh Day Adventist. Mm -hmm. I'm a Catholic, Mm -hmm. and it's fairly different. Although it's enough in common that, uh, for instance, they they're Trinitarian. They believe in the Trinity. I, I. it would be a bridge too far if, say, she were a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon, yeah. because they really fall too far outside of what is mainstream Christianity. Right. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses deny the, the the divinity of Christ. I couldn't. Yeah. Uh, that would be as like marrying, being yoked to to an unbeliever. <laughs> but. And and that's that's the main tension in the marriage, but we we work through that, and we uh, we have compromised on that. And my grandfather always said, and I'm sure you've heard this before. You know, son, you can be, you can be with a with your wife, you can be right or you can be happy. You take <laughs> take your pick. Yeah. <laughs> so I don't. I I'm careful about that. But God has used that very positive experience as a way to really kind of catapult me back. Yeah. into the world and uh, I one thing that may interest people who listen you know there's very people still have choice when they go to prison so you really have a fundamental road just it's it's more stark than you see in the world because it's it's such a confined community but you really have the choice to uh, come to terms with why you're there it could be along the spectrum of you're completely innocent, but you're still stuck in prison, to you did it, uh, but you're sorry for what you did. That, that's the category I fell into. Um, but but two, two decisions are made very early on. One is, depends on who you relate to in prison. You can relate to those people who want an upward path and are going to redeem the time that God has given them there because that's such a precious gift. There's no greater gift than time. Mm-hmm. So to be able to use it in a way to to come to grips with whatever got you there, which is how I use the time, or you can sink into criminality, drug use, the gang activity, all those types of things. You really, It's really two separate worlds there. And that's why a lot of people I know, everyone I know almost to a man who I've known in prison because I picked the right people are very successful men now. Okay. And is it... Who got out. Right. And can a person um, just kind of keep to themselves, keep on the straight and narrow in prison, 
or is it it sounds so political in prison from what I hear like um, like you could um, get into trouble just by um, receiving someone's food or something like um, in the lunch line or uh, I mean there's just these sides and it sounds to me like it's almost impossible or really hard just to hey I just want to mind my own business and go my own way <laughs> is it you know but there's caveats to what you're saying, but it's true. You can because let's take the let's take the guards or the administration, administrative staff. Uh, they share the fallen human nature too. Mm-hmm. So you get everything from sadistic COs, correctional officers, to uh, to those who are very kind mm-hmm. and and aren't aren't looking to to hurt you or persecute you. Um, so you're right. You you get all sorts of people who have issues with petty authority, and you're right. Some some will act that way and give you what's you know, give you a write up for you know passing food. Others don't care. So it's it's the whole. It's again knowing who you're around and who you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, you those people who always tried to make a distinction well you know it's us against them it's like well i don't like you so i'm against you and i like some of these guards so i'm kind of aligned with it's always a mixture mm-hmm. it's to me the dividing line was the good versus the bad those whose behavior was reformed and those whose behavior wasn't and that includes the guards and staff because a lot of the evil things that go on go on by those who abuse their power mm-hmm. in the system yeah. and uh, that's that's as you know, many crimes, sins just go un, unreported, unrecorded. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why human justice is is so imperfect, mm-hmm. and we we shouldn't be concerned so much about that as w- with God's God's justice. What about getting out? Is that pretty challenging um, as far as finding work and just getting established and things after getting out of prison? It is for many people. Um, I developed a good support system. Uh, of course, I had my my wife, who was then my fiance. But uh, I developed a good good group of people, who family and friends, uh, fellow Catholics mm-hmm. um, that I knew uh, that helped me when I got out, um, and I, I plugged into the right the right group of people. Okay. Helped me get a job. Helped me, you know, get a establish get a car. A home, you know that type of thing. So it's it's nothing like anything else in life. You know, you just if you plan, you work, and you build the right relationships and connections. Mm-hmm. Those things happen. They don't happen for people who don't try. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, don't plan, don't 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 try to make things happen for themselves. And what's it like to be out? Um, because it's still, I mean, it's been a few years uh, or a couple years or so, but. Um, it was like not a long, even two years. Not even two years. No, but that's after like twenty three years of in prison. Like, does it still feel a little bit like, I don't know, a dream or waking up from a dream or something like? It's that? a dream in a good sense. Yeah, it's a dream that uh, I think there's a sharper point on my sense of, of freedom and gratitude mm-hmm. for my freedom for what the things that people just take for granted. I don't really take for granted. Yeah. Um, the, all the very simple things in life have a the colors are brighter the 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 music is sweeter you know everything has a sharper edge to it in a very positive way yeah um, 
And again, my, my gratitude is enkindled, so it makes me even more want to uh, get on my knees and pray and keep that connection with God going and not, not drift back into uh, a certain worldliness where people subtly but unfortunately put uh, material creatures, which can be anything from money, power, humans, ahead of God, you know, God has to be, God has to be our all in all. And then from that love, you know, love of neighbor Mm -hmm. and also more of a keen sense of uh, what I can do to help others, you know, that, that's, that, that's really, uh, really important and big ways, small ways, but, uh, that's a big, that's a big uh, motive too, is to, is to continue to to make reparation and uh, to to build a positive life, you know, that builds up society and doesn't create such havoc. Because as you know, sin has that ripple effect, but so does virtue. So it could be either way. And you cast virtue in a pond, and everybody's boat rises in a way. You right. know, everyone is is uplifted by being around you, or you can be one of those people that, because of your sin, you're dragging people down with you and. Mm-hmm. So I've learned and really internalized those those types of things because I had a lot of time to think about it, which was a great a greater grace than afforded by so many people in this hyperactive uh, world we live in that's mm-hmm. just running at such a fast pace. People don't have time to think and contemplate, mm-hmm. which is a real loss. Yeah. So I guess in just wrapping up, um, just anything else about what your experience of God is like, like when I just in talking to you, you're you're already talking about what it's like in a way, and the way it seems to me, uh, one word that might describe it is perhaps just satisfaction, just that kind of a deep satisfaction with where you are and, and things like that. But um, what if you were like, let's say you have a day to do anything, and you just were wanting to. Um, you know, I want to just enjoy this connection with God today. Um, how would you, um, what would that day look like? Or um, just anything else about, you know, your relationship with God, what, what it's like, you know? Well, I, I connect with God wherever I'm at. I'm connecting okay. with God right here. Okay. Um, I'm enjoying this as a way to start my day. But I... I like every day, if, if I had my ideal way to craft it, I would always start with Mass. Okay. Um, because I know a lot of people, and this is just kind of the, the sensibility of the age, but my sensibility is to see a deep beauty in that type of liturgy, in that type of ritual and ceremony, whereas, uh, unfortunately, today people have lost uh, kind of a connection with the beauty of the, of the symbols and, and the, the types of rituals that go back, you know, millennia. See, to me, that resonates in my heart, but it, it always goes back to that theme of me being a hist- historian and a love of history and that connection with the truth. Mm-hmm. So I can connect to tradition in a way that connects me with the eternal. So that's how I would start my day. But both I and Maria love to be outdoors and to do things outdoors. So I connect with God in nature mm-hmm. so much. Uh and as you know, she's a wonderful artist of nature, mm-hmm. painter of nature. And so I, I, 
I connect with those things that, that as God the Creator. I'm big into astronomy, and that to me is the <laughs> ultimate connection with God in this material universe. It's just I I, I think well if you could do so such magnificent work with the stars and the galaxies that just just expands my soul to such a degree what will it be like when i can contemplate you face to face for eternity hmm. you know the god himself if you if you're if you're if you're if your creation is so magnificent how much more so the creator mm-hmm. so my day ideally is mass uh, nature hikes or traveling i love to travel and uh, that that's how I would spend my day just in, in doing those types of things um, you know I may have mentioned this before but our library here just down the street in the walking distance you can check out telescopes you know yes you did I'm going to yeah. have to do that yeah <laughs> that's awesome um, you know when I first met you it was in the sauna uh, you had a towel over your head and you were like uh, <laughs> repeating something and I was curious like what's going on over here and I think I asked you like I said do you have some kind of mantra going or something Mm -hmm. like that and you I think you said you were praying the the rosary yeah I was praying my rosary so when praying um for you is it more like well I'm going to go through this and I'm going to benefit from it spiritually whether I know it or not something's happening to me spiritually or is it more of an a benefit through intellectually contemplating what you're praying and through thinking about that um, and communicating that to God, you're benefiting it from it that way and th- and that's how you're connecting to God or or how do you see prayer you know well I I want to speak specifically the rosary because okay. it's often misunderstood it's it's first of all repetitive prayer is not uh, there's nothing against that in the Bible, uh, that because the, the angels in in the Book of Revelation they they repeated they repeat the prayers you know to heaven, um, but it it's it's both in the sense that uh, again my my sense of history comes into play. So the Blessed Virgin Mary gave that as as an aid to prayer to Saint Simon Stock back in the early. When was that? The twelfth uh, century, I believe. I'll have to get. Don't don't quote me on that. But then she gave it again to Saint Dominic during the Albigensian heresy that the Church was battling in southern France to to bring people back to to the faith. So it's it's a highly indulgence prayer. I know we don't have time to go into that, but Martin Luther was not correct. Indulgences are an important part of the Church, drawing from the spiritual treasury of the church um it it does communicate many graces from god in the praying of the rosary and it's it's centuries old obviously at least 800 years old um it's a way to connect on all levels so i know that intellectually but i also in in repeating the prayers you know it's the each decade of 10 10 hail marys uh, anchored by uh, an Our Father and a Glory Be, is designed. You're you're contemplating one of the mysteries of the Rosary, uh, which are the the mysteries of Christ's uh, incarnation, birth, life, and redemption. 
the in the in those joyful, sorrowful, and uh, glorious mysteries. So w- whatever that mystery is, let's say the nativity of our Lord, the third joyful mystery. I'm thinking about the meaning of Christmas, the meaning of our Lord's incarnation and birth into the world, and 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 so it's not it's not just I'm focused on the Hail Marys. Those are kind of the background to lifting my my thoughts toward that the contemplation of that particular mystery and and making a real connection that way to God. Okay. Well, thanks Matt. It's been a pleasure talking with you and it's been informative for me and I just appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Appreciate you, Will. Mm-hmm.